Satan is bound in this present age from ever being able to precipitate or provoke Armageddon prior to the time that God has established for that event to occur. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, it blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 50. I interview Sam Storms. We talk about end times from the amillennial point of view. So from that viewpoint, we look at interpreting the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog, Israel, Daniel's 70th week, and much more. So with no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, last time we talked about spiritual gifts, uh, and then today we're going to be talking about eschatology, which is uh, a common subject on this podcast. Uh, so I'm excited to get into it. I'm sure many of our listeners are excited to hear uh, from you as well. Uh, I will put uh, our last interview in the show notes for anyone that, that missed that episode and they want to hear your full testimony and story. But for those um, that are unfamiliar with yourself, uh, give us a little bit of background as, uh, as far as who you are. Sure. Well, I was born and raised here in Oklahoma. I went to the University of Oklahoma. It's where I met my wife, um, with whom I'll celebrate in a few months our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, We're not there yet, but we're close. Yeah. Um, Graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, which will make uh, the topic of this podcast seem odd because uh, my views have... uh, have diverted greatly from the ones that I believed and was taught when I was at Dallas Seminary. I pastored in Dallas for a number of years, also in Ardmore, Oklahoma, Kansas City, taught theology at Wheaton College for four years. Um, And I've been in Kansas City since, uh, excuse me, in uh, Oklahoma City since 2008. And in about seven months, when I finish preaching through Romans, I'll be stepping down as lead pastor. And um, staying in the church, staying in here in Oklahoma City, but not serving in that capacity as the lead pastor of Bridgeway. Awesome. Um, cool. Yeah, that was going to be my first question. You have kind of an interesting story because your, your background in eschatology has really changed quite dramatically uh, or drastically, I should say. And so um, why don't we start there? What, what prompted this change of your view on eschatology? Yeah, I was raised Southern Baptist, and we never heard any other view of eschatology other than the uh, traditional dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. Uh, When I went to Dallas Seminary, um, that was obviously, that's the confessional position of Dallas Seminary. uh, I don't know that it's the case anymore now, but when I was there, you had to uh, sign your agreement with the Dallas confessional statement before you could even graduate. I was teetering on the brink uh, when graduation came around and could, and in good conscience could just barely sign the statement, but I did sign it. But really what, um, what turned me around initially, and I just turned to it is this passage in Ephesians chapter two. I think it was my second year at seminary. I was taking a course in the uh, Greek exegesis of Ephesians. And our professor, just at random, I think it's providential, but he did it randomly, assigned us a paragraph in Ephesians to write our term paper on. And I was assigned Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And it's in that passage 
that Paul uh, talks about how Gentiles before the coming of Christ were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They had no part in the covenants of promise. And then he says that through Christ and his shed blood, we have been drawn near. We have, are now one new man together with believing Jews. And he says down in, um, in verse 19, you're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. You're no, no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and uh, members of the household of God. So I read that passage and I said, all right, now, mm. the, at the very core of dispensationalism and even at the very core of the pre-tribulation rapture view is this idea that the Israel and the church are two separate covenant peoples. And I just, I saw that passage and I thought, Paul is teaching precisely the opposite. Uh, yeah. He's saying that whereas they were separate, now through Christ, they have been made into one new man and um, they are together uh, heirs of the covenant promise. Uh, and then, of course, in Galatians 3, Paul reaffirms that. So really, when the shift began to happen with me, it was in Dallas uh, during seminary as just initially Ephesians 2, and then other texts became uh, very uh, influential in my, in my life and in, in, the, in my thinking. But I kind of deliberately put it all on hold until I graduated. I, I, I wanted to be able to sign that final statement with integrity, but probably within um, a year after I graduated, I had fully ceased to be dispensational. Um, I'd also become post-tribulational in terms of the rapture, and probably by, I'd say, four or five years after graduation, I was an all-millennialist. So the dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view uh, was pretty much gone um, by about 1983, 82 or 83. So wow. it was a, it was a, a an interesting journey. Uh, and it was very deliberate, very careful. And I was in dialogue with a number of friends and studying and reading everything I could on the subject and just came to, uh, to the convictions that are now laid out in my book, Kingdom Come. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was, it was a great book, and he, he wrote more about that experience in the book. And I was that was one thing that was surprising to me, which is how hardcore that was. That at, at least at, at that seminary, um, that you you had to uh, agree with, with that eschatology in order to to graduate. That was that was surprising to me. Um, yeah, I don't. And again, I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, um, I know that when I was there, uh, charismatics obviously wouldn't have been admitted to seminary, much less graduated. Yeah. And the same was true of people who were not dispensational premillennial. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think they have relaxed their position. They still hold to it confessionally as a school, and that's what they teach. But I don't think they withhold a, a, de a degree from somebody because they differ on those points. Yeah, I imagine that'd be so difficult because imagine if you <laughs> you're towards the end, um, you know, reaching that degree, maybe your senior year, and you're you're, you're ready to, to to graduate, and you have this shift in thinking. That's that, that would be, it just puts the, it puts the seminary in a difficult position to sort of deny someone graduation because of that. Um, so that, that would make sense that they would change on that. But uh, you also mentioned, I, this may be an interview that I heard, that you had written Kingdom Come and then you put it down for, for a bit um, before actually publishing it. Now, had you, how much of that had you finished before you kind of took that break? What prompted the break? And then, you know, what, what, what made you decide to kind of pick it back up and publish? Yeah, um, I think it was probably the uh, 80, 1986, 1987, I had finished it. 
I sent it to a man by the name of Anthony Hokema, who's written an excellent book on eschatology. It's called The Bible in the Future. I think it's still in print. If it isn't, it should be. He wrote a really generous forward to it. And I don't know what it was. I think probably because I was just continuing in my study to see new things and understand things better, that I felt that I probably need to pause, put pause on uh, the publication of that manuscript. I had a publisher had already ex expressed interest in it. So I, I just kind of shelved it for the time being and then continued to um, study the issue and explore. And of course, the book grew. I mean, it probably quadrupled in size from its okay. initial yeah. form. And uh, I began to address other issues like the Olivet Discourse <clears throat> and the subject of the Antichrist and so many other uh, matters related to uh, eschatology. So it was in the, uh, gosh, let me think now, probably the early 2000s um, that I really began to put pen to paper. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a gradual process. I think it was the Lord really putting pause on the initial publication of that manuscript. I think if I had published it, I would have regretted it and said, oh, gosh, there's so much more I would like to have said. So I think it was providential that I waited as long as I did. Yeah. I'll say when I picked up the book, I thought I was going to read a book just about uh, the millennium. And I was delighted to see that it, you truly cover all of eschatology. I shouldn't say all, but but most. Um, and you hit a, a lot of different topics. So I was really pleased. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was great. It's very thorough a, as well. Um, so what are some misconceptions uh, you would say that are attributed to the all millennial view? Yeah, there are several. One of which is that we don't believe in a millennium. <laughs> so I, I wish we could take the ah off of that, the alpha privative, because um, it sounds like we either don't believe in it or we're against it. And I, I most definitely do believe in the millennial kingdom. It's described in Revelation 20. I just don't believe it is a period of a literal 1,000 years tacked onto the end of human history um, that starts when Christ returns and then consummates in the, in the eternal state. So I definitely do believe in them. In fact, anybody who believes the Bible has to believe, has to be a millennialist. Just the question is, what is the nature of that, uh, of that millennial reign and when does it happen? Uh, so a second misconception is that pretty much down through history, those who were all millennial would say that, um, that the, uh, the first resurrection is regeneration or being born again and that the millennial reign is happening in and through the church on earth during the present church age. Mm. I believe that um, the first resurrection is a reference to our entrance into the intermediate state. That is to say when a, uh, for example, I'm doing a funeral service tomorrow for a brother in our church who died. He had a stroke and never recovered. Um, when he died, when he breathed his last, he entered into what we call the intermediate state. His spirit uh, his, the immaterial dimension of his being is now present with Christ, conscious, joyful, celebrating, worshiping. Um, it, we call it intermediate because it's in between our embodied life now on earth and the time that we will receive our glorified resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And I believe that the millennium is describing what is going on right now with Christ among the saints, like my friend, who have died and gone to be with Jesus, and they are sharing uh, his redemptive rule, his providential 
kingly reign over the earth and all of all of creation in mm. some capacity they are uh co-regents with him mm. and that i think is what revelation 20 is talking about a third um misconception and this may be the most important one of all is that a lot of people have associated amillennialism with theological liberalism in other mm. words if you if you're amillennial it must mean you don't believe in the inerrancy of the bible and you don't believe in taking biblical authors uh, at their word, uh, that you uh, don't believe in the supernatural, uh, you don't believe maybe even, even in the second coming of Christ. And of course, all of that is just profoundly false. Um, the reason why they typically associate it with, uh, with uh, liberalism is because of the fundamentalist modernist controversy back around the first 25 years of the, of the uh, 20th century. When theological liberalism began to grow and spread globally, um, part and parcel of their view was a denial of the supernatural, and for many of them, a denial of the second coming of Jesus. And um, many of them, if they did embrace a millennial view, they embraced post-millennialism, which we can talk about later if you want to. So when the uh, fundamentalists wrote the fundamentals of the faith, when, when they really kind of dug in their heels and said, no, no, these are the foundational doctrinal truths of Christianity. Included among them was premillennialism. And so uh, there came to exist in the minds of many people this identification of premillennialism with a, being a Bible-believing conservative evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so if you didn't believe in premillennialism, you obviously weren't a Bible-believing conservative evangelical. Yeah. Uh, now, that misconception has... I, gratefully and, and i'm thankful for it has diminished over the years but it still accounts for why a lot of people um kind of knee-jerk when they hear the word amillennial they think oh so you don't believe what the bible says about the millennium yes i do i just don't think that what the premillennialist says about it is what the author of scripture had in mind um so those are pro those are probably the the three primary misconceptions about amillennialism yeah yeah, thanks for laying that out. I think um, I think you're definitely right with that. And in fact, I feel at least with that second, I know I've had that misconception before myself um, with the resurrection just being, um, of course, not a physical resurrection. I've heard it explained. I, it's my understanding that some omnibus do believe that this is actually a, a rebirth as opposed to what you mentioned as, uh, you know, uh, the intermediate state. Um, and so for that reason, I, I couldn't quite get my head around that because we, because it's easy to argue against that because resurrection is, is something that's alive, dead, and then alive once more. Whereas a rebirth is something that's dead and then alive. So it didn't really match what, what my understanding of what a resurrection is. Um, and so, although, I, I, although let me interject here, there are passages in the new Testament where being born again is likened unto new life uh, as if it were a coming alive. Um, so, uh, you know, he made us alive together with Christ. So, uh, there's definitely that, that imagery that works, but I just don't think that applies to what John's talking about in Revelation 20. Sure. Um, and, and I would agree with that. I mean, what, what I'm saying is, is that that was something that sort of held me back from, from this view. And I think you took what I felt was a weakness in the amillennial view and, and actually completely turned me on. And, and uh, now I feel like it's truly a, a strength um, to the view. 
and we'll get into that more here in just a second. Um, but I think going on, on what you said about the third, I think you talked about this as well with the dispensational view being the majority. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, when, when it comes to sort of, you know, you're looking to pastors and, and you got people guiding you and people that you trust uh, that know the, the scripture and you want to have the correct view. And so part of that, I think in some people's minds, and I, I sort of succumb to this as well, is that I, I know all, all these people that have the dispensational view. And so a part of me wants to adhere to that because I feel like it must be right because it is sure. the majority. Um, and so definitely the majority view. Yeah. I, you will. Um, I can't think right now of a single religious program on TV hmm. that is anything other than dispensational pre-trib. Now there might be some post-tribbers there, but they're all pre-millennial. They all hold to the distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, I mentioned in the book, I think I give the, I can't remember the exact numbers, but when I was writing the book, I went to uh, the local Christian bookstore and I looked under the section called prophecy or eschatology. I think I counted 125, 130 books. And I think all but a handful were of the dispensational premillennial view. So honestly, a lot of people who've grown up in Bible believing churches have never even heard that there is an alternative mm. position. Mm. Yeah. There's anything other than the dispensational pre-trib view. And so when they hear somebody articulate something different, it really knocks them back on their heels. In fact, I can remember when um, I graduated from Dallas, I was on staff at a church in Dallas that was strongly dispensational. And I was preaching through first Thessalonians and I became thoroughly convinced of the post-trib rapture. And when I taught that, I mean this seriously, some people thought I just as well have denied the deity of Christ. That's how dear and precious that doctrine was to them. Yeah. And um, they reacted very negatively. They thought I had totally abandoned the faith. When these people would hear that the pre-trib rapture perhaps wasn't biblical, you had touched something very dear to their hearts. And they reacted uh, really angrily as if you had abandoned the faith. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing how dear and precious uh, these particular doctrines of eschatology are to many Christians' hearts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was maybe a few months ago, I saw, maybe before our first interview, I saw you with a, a debate that John Piper had hosted, which was really cool because he had, he, he, we got to see three different, oh, all three views on, on the millennium there. Um, and it just struck me that the confidence that you had in this view and I see that a lot from the dispensational. I mean, they, they teach that view um, like it, uh, uh, like it is the only truth. But in that debate, you, I felt like you really held your own, um, and you, 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 you spoke of it uh, with just a lot of confidence. And that sort of it drew me and thought, okay, I, maybe I need to explore this a little bit further. Um, and, you know, draw me, eventually read your book, it took me some time, but I eventually, you know, picked up your book. And like I said, I felt like some of the weaknesses that I thought the, the view had ended up, you just turned them around to strengths. And so I want to start there here in a second. Um, but before we go there, I want to ask about um, the origins of, of the amillennial view 
Um, I know I've heard from from some people that this they'll, they'll try to expose that like this is something that, that came out of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore, you know, they'll try to you know demonize it in that way. But uh, do you know what the origins of the view are? Well, there are different uh, interpretations of that. I have a section in the book in which I talk about it. Um, there is a book. Um, gosh, is it called Regnum Chylorum, using the Latin phrase by Charles Hill, in which he demonstrates that amillennialism was the predominant view in the early church among the early church fathers. Hmm. It wasn't something that just started with Augustine in the, uh, right. the late fourth and early fifth century, but Augustine did popularize it. Uh, Augustine uh, popularized it, and I say popularized it because of his massive influence. When he endorsed and uh, defended the amillennial view, it became pretty much the predominant perspective throughout the next thousand years. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church largely had embraced it. Um, premillennialists like to argue that that was the view of the early church. Uh, some of them even try to make the case that dispensational premillennialism was the view of the early church. And I think I pretty much debunk that in my book. Um, hmm. A man that uh, was a classmate of mine named Alan Boyd wrote his master's thesis refuting that. And I cite much of his evidence in my book. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm even regardless of where you might come out in, ter in terms of uh, <clears throat> historic expressions of these various millennial views, we need to remember it's only scripture that tells us what is right and what is wrong. Because <clears throat> people, <clears throat> excuse me, people in church history, even great godly saints, have gotten other things wrong as well. Yeah. Um, and we just have to come back. What does the Bible say? Not what did Augustine or Aquinas or Calvin or Wesley or anybody else say? Sure. It has to be, what does is, what is the word of God tell us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so when you look at the millennium, it tends to dictate how one views the book of Revelation. And you talk, you sort of get into that, but you really just focus on, on, the, on the judgments. But what, what is your view of the book of Revelation? Yeah. Uh, by the way, for anybody who wants to go into this deeper, I preached all through verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation. Oh, wow. And you can go to samstorms.org and click on resources or no, wait a second, click on uh, sermons, I guess. And uh, all of my sermons are on there. Uh, you can watch them or listen to them. If you go to bridgewaychurch.com, bridgewaychurch.com, all the notes, all the manuscripts of, of all of my preaching is available there for free for people to make use of. Nice. Um, I take, I think Revelation is a mixture. I think it is part futuristic. I do believe it describes what will transpire at the end of history in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. I do not believe that from chapter four to the end, it's talking about the final seven years uh, on mm -hmm. earth, the so-called tribulation. I think the idealistic view, which says basically what Revelation is doing, is portraying for us in very graphic imagery, the multiplicity of metaphors, um, the, the constant ongoing battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan, uh, and that all of these principles that we see in Revelation are, have lived out and, and had expression throughout the entirety of church history. So in other words, you can see pretty much all of Revelation, except for um, chapters 19 and following, in the 2nd century, the 5th century, the 10th, the 20th. These are principles of this war between good and evil uh, that are manifest in varying degrees throughout the whole course of church history. 
Um, so that's that's the kind of the view that I take. It's the idealistic view with a touch of um, obviously still bringing us up to the time when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom. Yeah. And I like I like that view because, you know, you're really taking some of the other views where you're, you're seeing some of it as preterist or in the past. You're seeing some of it is taking course over history and then some that's yet still future. And so if you're coming from a different view, you, you know, you're, I guess you're somewhat familiar with, with the idealist view because um, it, I guess in some ways incorporates all, all three of those views. Yeah, I should also say this. To whom was the book of Revelation originally written? It was written to seven literal, concrete local churches in Asia Minor. Read about that in Revelation 2 and 3. And the whole of the book was designed to have application to them. Well, yeah. if it was only designed to talk about the last seven years of human history, how could it have any application to the people living in the first century to whom the book was originally addressed? Yeah. So people need to think about that when they try to make sense of the book as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a, something you, you have to reckon with for sure. Um, so in your book, you, you tend to just focus on the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, those judgments. So what is your interpretation uh, of those? Yeah, I don't believe they are sequential. I don't believe, for example, uh, that the seven seals happen, and then that's followed by the seven trumpets, which has been followed by the seven bowls. I think they overlap, and I think that what they are designed to to teach us is that the judgments of God against an unbelieving world can at one particular time be partial at another time, be more complete and more intense and more global in their nature. Uh, so there is a growing intensification, uh, an increasing um, spread, if, if you will, of the scope of these judgments as you move from the seals all the way through uh, the bowls. But that doesn't mean that they are to be located sequentially in a chronological fashion, as if, well, you can't have the second trumpet until you've had the first, and you can't have the fifth right. bowl until you've had the third. I think that misreads it. I think there's a lot of overlap and recapitulation among these various judgments that John is trying to say, this is what is um, standard fare, as it were, the commonplaces of human history as God is expressing his judgment and his wrath against an unbelieving world. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are listening, I'll put a link to, to your book, Kingdom Come, in the show notes. But you had a, a chapter there in the book that was fantastic. Like I said, very thorough. You kind of go through each view and make your case for, for what you just mentioned. Um, if you really want some more about what you just said, uh, you, can, you can pick that up there. Um, I want to get into kind of the, the two major arguments against amillennial uh, ism and one you've already addressed being the the first resurrection, uh, whereas uh, the alternate view is seeing that first resurrection as being uh, physical, and you've already mentioned that you see that as the intermediate state. Um, but I'd like you to 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 go a little bit further there. Um, you make a, a connection with this resurrection and the martyrs mentioned earlier um, mm -hmm. in the Book of Revelation. And then you also, I think, make such a strong argu argument with the word uh, first and tying that to being, um, you know, more like the old to be replaced by the new. So uh, talk right. about that. Yeah. When he says, um, I'm just flipping over in my Bible while we're, since we're talking about that text in Revelation 20, where he says, um, 
I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, when you turn back over to Revelation chapter 6, you find almost identical language to that, where um, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And so I think he's talking about the same thing. Well, everybody acknowledges that uh, the fifth seal that I just read to you from Revelation 6 is descriptive of the intermediate state. Mm, well, yeah. why then would we think that Revelation 20 is talking about anything different from that? Uh, so it seems to me that he's talking about the same reality. Um, and then, of course, you have um, the... Um, the um, statement in the letter to the church at Smyrna. Satan is throwing them into prison. Um, Jesus is talking about they're going to suffer. And he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I think that crown of life is actually just another way of describing the first resurrection of Revelation 20. Yeah. Um, and then again, um, he talks about um, trying to find it here in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, yeah, it's in the, in the letter to the church at Laodicea in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So here's this reference to if you, if you suffer martyrdom, if you stay faithful and overcome all the way to death, Jesus is going to ele elevate you to sit with him on his throne. That's just simply another way of saying what we read in Revelation 20 about they reigned with Christ. So I see these connections between Revelation 20 and what we see earlier in Revelation 2, 3, and 6. And it seems to me he's describing the experience of the martyrs in the intermediate state. That's yeah. happening right now. So that might fill in this blank. People are saying, well, when is the millennium? It's right now. It's, it spans the, the time from the first coming of Jesus when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father to the second coming of Jesus when he appears in the clouds of heaven. This entire period, which is what now, you know, almost 2,000 years, uh, just short of it, that is the millennial reign of the saints. It's been going on for that period of time. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I don't know if I, because I, I knew that that mentioned the martyrs specifically as the first resurrection. So I had to, it took me a while to sort of reconcile that with the future's view because, you know, there's a pre-tribulational rapture. And, we, and so we're looking at, okay, well, I guess this is just mentioning those martyrs here. But once you connect that back to the fifth seal, um, it, it fits like a glove. It's a, you know, it seemed to be like parallel text. Um, and then, so talk about, you know, we see the first resurrection and that's contrasted with the second death later in Revelation 20. And I think you, yeah. you do a great job in your book of showing how we have, first and that's being contrasted with, with second death and so we, um anyway just talk, talk a little bit about that yeah it, it is a little it is a little bit complex so people just kind of have to read it in the book but bottom line to summarize it when you look at the way john uses his language the language first and old both refer to realities in this present age prior to the consummation the words second and new pertain to the new creation, uh, the age to come. And that is why um, I think that the first resurrection is, is describing something that transpires in this present age, not something that transpires in the age to come after the second coming of Jesus. 
And if you look at the way John uses first and old, contrasting it with second and new, and even how that language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, I think it justifies the conclusion that the first resurrection is something that happens in the context of this present church age prior to the consummation of all things. Yeah, I think I think that's fantastic, because if you look at uh, the first death is physical, second death being spiritual, right. and contrast that with the first resurrection being spiritual, spiritual and the second right. being physical. physical. So it, it, it really um, once you see that it it just it just fits. I think it, it's a it's a great way of, of interpreting that um, something that, like I said before, seems like it, it's a problem ends up really becoming, I feel like, such a such a great strength to this view. Uh, another one of those that you, you hear often that I feel like you made it really great case for in the book as well is the binding of Satan. Um, yeah. And uh, so obviously I, I don't, I don't want to harp on this because people have probably heard um, you know, the, the understanding of what that binding means for the millennials, but you can kind of quickly talk about that. But um, you also make a, a great argument as far as um, at that point, even from the futurist view, if we see judgment, and that the all the unbelievers, uh, including the, the beast and the false prophet, are cast into the abyss, who is left to be deceived? Exactly. Yeah, the argument the premillennialist uses, it's standard among all of them, whether they're dispensational or historic premills, is that the description of Satan's binding in verses uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, is so... Uh, per- so complete, so all-consuming that it would rule out the possibility that Satan does anything in the present age. But it's very clear that there is a very specific focus of the of the binding of Satan. Uh, yes, um, you know he, w- with regard to what he is bound, with reference to what he is bound, he can't do anything. That doesn't mean he can't tempt us. Doesn't mean he can't prowl about like a like a roaring lion. Doesn't mean he can't blind the minds of the unbelieving. Second Corinthians four says. Doesn't mean that he can't hurl his fiery missiles down upon us. When you ask the question, <clears throat> from what was Satan uh, bound, or with regard to what was he prohibited, and the answer is given to us when it's when he is finally released from the abyss, <clears throat> down in verse seven. What does it say that Satan will do when he's released from his prison? He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth and mobilize them for this final assault on the church and the people of God. So Satan is bound in this present age from ever being able to precipitate or provoke Armageddon prior to the time that God has established for that event to occur. The text doesn't say he's bound and prohibited from tempting you and me or that he can no longer blind the minds of unbelievers or that he can no longer, through his demonic uh, hordes, uh, demonize and indwell and torment other people. He's bound specifically from being able to stir up Armageddon prematurely. And we know that because you should never read verses 1 through 3 without reading verses 7 through 10 because 7 through 10 tell us When he's released from the binding, what does he do? One thing and one thing only. He orchestrates the nations of the earth uh, to gather together to bring this final assault against the people of God. And of course, it's then that the Lord Jesus Christ returns 
and destroys him and casts him into the abyss or into the lake of fire. Yeah, and that was always so troublesome because if you read the language about about the binding, it seems so um, all consuming. But once you point out, you know, okay, he is bound, but let's see what happens when he's unbound. What does he do? It's not all of a sudden now he's he's just released to tempt, um, which is one of those things that you used to argue against it. Yeah, it's all consuming with reference to his ability to, to stir up and orchestrate the nations for the, let me just add to this. Uh, this is the, this is the primary question the premillennialists ask. How can you say that Satan is bound during this present age? And I say he's bound with respect to one thing and one thing only. And that's described for us in verses seven through 10 of revelation 20. He's not bound from doing all the other things that we read about in the new Testament. So Got to be careful that you don't read into this so-called universal binding more than John intended. Let John define how that binding is uh, expressed and with regard to what Satan is bound. Yeah, and it really, if you take the the premillennial view and you take it to its ultimate conclusion, you kind of get some some weird funkiness with the millennium because you still have sin, even though Satan is you know from this view completely bound sin is still prevalent in the millennium death is still prevalent in the millennium and so you you kind of have to answer to that and then some other things that are kind of funky as well as you still have resurrection happening during the millennium as well so you point out in your book how if there's death during the millennium then now we're going to have this physical resurrection happening every time there's a death and and we so talk a yeah, little bit about fact, that and how that contrasts what, sure. what we see in resurrection in, in scripture. Yeah, and I probably should have included this earlier when you asked me, how did I come to my uh, eschatological views? Perhaps the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, of premillennialism for me was I read the New Testament and took note of what it says will happen at the second coming of Jesus. I had to challenge all of our listeners. Just do that. Just read, read the New Testament. And every time there's a reference to the second coming of Christ, take note of what it says happens. Death, physical death ends completely. First Corinthians 15. Uh, The final resurrection of both uh, the elect and non-elect occurs. Um, Unbelievers, the non-elect are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, The curse upon the natural creation, read that in Romans 8, is lifted at the time that we receive our redemption, our redemptive glorified bodies. Uh, the final judgment of the non-elect occurs at that time. Um, all opportunity to hear and receive and respond to the gospel terminates at that time. So I said, okay, wait just a minute now. According to premillennialism, after Jesus comes back, after the second coming, you still have physical death. You still have sin in the earth. You still have the creation cursed. You still have um, um, people giving birth. You have people coming to faith in Christ. Uh, You have, like you said, multiple uh, uh, resurrections, judgments occurring all through this 1,000-year period. So my point was, if if I take honestly and seriously what the New Testament says happens at the second coming, that absolutely precludes and rules out a thousand year period after Christ's coming in which all these things continue to occur. That was the final seal. Uh, on the death of premillennialism for me, and it remains such to this day. I don't know how premillennialists can avoid that. 
Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's crazy because, you know, you think about the resurrection, it, scripture ta- speaks of that as, as an event. Whereas if you look in the other view, you have the rapture, you have the, this resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, and then just resurrections all throughout, which is on, on an individual basis. Um, and then you have this duality where we have people that have been resurrected and then people that are just still in just a, a regular physical body. So that's yeah. also a very strange thing to reconcile with while we have that duality going, uh, you know, amongst God's people. Um, so, but anyway, uh, once again, I think if we look at that from this view, you, you have an answer to that. Um, also, I want to ask, I don't know if you addressed this specifically in the book, but perhaps you did. The, the intermediate state that we see now, um, is that different than the intermediate state that we saw um, before Christ's ascension and resurrection? Yeah, that's a good question. It raises the whole issue of what happens when a believer dies. How did what happened to Old Testament saints when they died? Um, most scholars believe that prior to um, the resurrection, exaltation, and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, that when people died, they went to Sheol, and Sheol basically was um, a place that had two two compartments, if I can put it that way. One called Hades, where unbelievers went, and the other called, uh, somewhat metaphorically in Luke, uh, Abraham's bosom. Um, But it wasn't the final full um, uh, presence with with the risen Christ, as we read about happening to people who die subsequent to Christ's resurrection and exaltation. Now, whether or not that's true, some would say Old Testament saints like Abraham and Daniel and Isaiah, when they died, they went immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus uh, in the same way that we do now. Others would say, no, they went to uh, Sheol, which was kind of a a halfway house, if I can put it that way, um, before the the final entrance into the presence of the Lord. That's a very difficult and challenging question. There aren't a whole lot of explicit texts. Um, I mean, you have Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross. So today mm-hmm. you'll be with me in paradise. Well, paradise has to be a reference to the very presence of God himself around the throne. Um, and that happened prior to the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a challenging question. Um, I, I, I'm hoping to write something on that. I'm going to title the book, what happens when a Christian dies. And I want to address that issue in more detail because I'm, I'm even still a little fuzzy in my own thinking on it. Um, you know, in Luke's gospel, it talks about how when uh, Lazarus, the poor man died, he went into the bosom of Abraham, which Mm -hmm. was old Testament language for being in the presence of God. Um, the rich man went into Hades where he was tormented. So is, is that what happened before the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus? Maybe. We certainly know that after it, all those who die in faith go into the immediate presence of God. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested in your take on that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on that same page where I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's what, why I asked. Um, yeah. Anyways. There are not a lot of people who are real dogmatic on that. It's a, it's a, it's a challenging issue. Yeah. Um, interesting thing about for, for sure. And of course we have, we saw a resurrection um, 
after after Christ died on the cross there as well. So there's also those questions of exactly who were they? Um, yeah. And I believe they were Old Testament saints. And I believe that um, they were truly resurrected. I think this is Matthew 27, I believe. And that uh, when Christ ascended to the, into, the, into the presence of the Father, they actually constituted uh, his retinue, his parade. Uh, I think they probably ascended into the presence of God at the same time that Jesus did, um, that we read about in Acts chapter 1 at the end of Luke's gospel. But again, the text doesn't say that explicitly. Right. But if they were resurrected and they had glorified bodies, they wouldn't have died again. They wouldn't, it wouldn't have been like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he wasn't glorified and he died yet again. These saints, I think, were glorified and thus would have ascended into God's presence, much in the same way that Elijah did in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So Israel today, um, do you see that? And you mentioned that you still see uh, there's still yet future um, prophecies to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Do you see Israel today in their, um, you know, rebirth? Is that significant to, to prophecy? It's interesting. I just finished preaching on Romans 11 on that subject in my, in my series yeah. on Romans at, here at Bridgeway. And of course, I have an entire chapter on it in the book. I believe that uh, whatever is happening um, in the, the actual literal nation state of Israel that was rebirthed and reconstituted in 1948, whatever is happening among Jewish men and women throughout the earth today, that God is still moving in saving power among ethnic Jews, and he's bringing them to faith in Jesus. And when he does, he grafts them back into that one olive tree where there are also believing Gentiles. I think that one olive tree is the church. I don't believe that Israel will be reconstituted as a nation and have a separate inheritance distinct from uh, the church of Jesus Christ. I believe God is moving powerfully among Jewish men and women. We hear about it all the time. They're coming to faith in the Messiah, and they are being incorporated into the body of Christ, where they will share equally with believing Gentiles in all the covenant promises. If there is a move of the Spirit of God, in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus to bring ethnic Jewish men and women to saving faith in Jesus. I don't believe it will be national in the sense that the, the theocratic nation of Israel, as we see it in the old Testament is going to be reconstituted. Right. I don't believe that's true. I think if they, if they are going to be saved in this mass in gathering, which I hope and pray is true. I'm not convinced it is, but I hope, I hope it is. They'll be incorporated into the body of Christ, members of the church of Jesus Christ, with all other believers of all other ethnicities, equally sharing in the inheritance of the promises. Sure. I got you. Okay. Um, yeah, that was my understanding. I, I didn't, um, I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, explain that, I, I guess. Well, um, so I'm glad you clarified, but, um, yeah, I think that that's great. And I think you, you talked about in the book as well, as, as far as what, you know, that fullness of, of the Gentiles mean, can you talk about that? Cause you, cause you kind of compared that fullness of the Gentiles, um, to this also fullness of, of, of Israel. Uh. Yes, I think the reference to the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of Israel, both are referring to the sum total of the remnants of the elect among Gentiles and among Jews throughout the course of history. So mm -hmm. when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Paul's saying, 
all of the elect among the Gentiles will have come to saving faith. When the fullness of Israel comes in, it means all the remnants, according to the election of grace throughout history, will have come in, and uh, then the second coming will occur. So the fullness of Gentiles and the fullness of Israel are both referring, I think, to the sum total of all the remnants of believers from among those groups down through history. Sure, yeah. So the dispensational view, often they see it as there's like a, a cap or there's a fullness as it means now it's, it's complete. And now God is going to move in, in Israel where there's kind of that, that complete separation kind of thing, um, which I, I like this understanding much better, which coincides with what Paul wrote about, as you mentioned earlier in Ephesians. Um, cool. Gog and Magog. Um, what's your view? <laughs> I don't believe it's Russia. <laughs> Uh, that's been thoroughly debunked and people need to put that away. And I, I give the, the reasons for that in the book. I won't go into them. I think Gog and Magog is simply um, symbolic language for the enemies of God. It's, the, it's, it's all the nations of the earth who are opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Um, so it would be North Korea. It would be, um, you know, Iran. It would be any of the nations of the earth, regardless of what, where they might uh, be found who stand in opposition to the kingdom of Christ and will be destroyed at the time of the second coming. Um, so again, I don't believe that, you know, talks about Mish, uh, Magog is a reference to Moscow maybe. And um, th those kinds of uh, verbal connections just simply don't have any basis in fact. So Gog and Magog, simply a symbolic reference to the enemies of the kingdom of Christ who will be crushed and destroyed the Battle of Armageddon in conjunction with our Lord's return. Yeah, in my understanding, you see uh, Revelation 20 as a recapitulation of what we see in 19, because we see yes. allusions to Gog, Magog in both 19 and 20. Right. And so if you have that premillennial view, you really see two Gog, two Magog. Armageddon. You got one before, you got one at the end of the you know millennium, whereas you see it, this, this, they're both speaking about the same Gog, yes. Magog, right? Yeah, just from different perspectives to give us. That's what happens in Revelation, all through Revelation. You get the same event described from a different vantage point, from a different perspective. I use the illustration of uh, in my series on Revelation. It's like uh, at a football game, you'll have an end zone camera. You'll have a, a box office camera. You'll have a sideline camera. You'll have a camera from the 50-yard line. They're all showing the same game but it's from a different point of view. So when they describe it, they're going to describe it in differing terms, but not contradictory terms. Yeah. And I, I, I like that a lot because the other opposing view, the future view, you got to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. You kind of have to split that into two and then you got to place it here happening. You know, it, it's also, it's another thing with that, that view that's also a weakness. The, the thought of there being this millennium, that it's just, it's just restricted to just like 1000 years. And all of a sudden we have this rebellion happening again. We have it <laughs> happening right before um, Christ comes. And then at the end of the thousand year period, again, this is, it's a, it's a total repetition. Well, maybe it's, you know, you're saying maybe it's not repetition. Maybe it's just recapitulation of the same thing. Plus the fact, and this is a major problem. I think it's insurmountable for premillennialism. Revelation 19, which we all agree describes the second coming of Jesus, portrays all unbelievers as being killed at the second mm. coming. They are all subject to judgment. So the question then becomes, 
who populates the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies so that they can continue to reproduce and raise up children who constitute the unbelievers at the end of the thousand years. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Yeah. You kind of basically have to take that all as being figurative and say, well, there's going to be some people that, that survive. When people push back on me like that, I say, well, if John, let's just assume for a moment that John wanted to describe a uni, the universality of death at the second coming of all unbelievers, how would he do it? Well, hmm. he talks flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Hmm. Um, again, uh, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who's sitting on the throne. I don't know how you can describe universality uh, and, and describe everybody with, with any more graphic or, or, or comprehensive terms than those. Sure. How you yeah. got anybody, how you have this mass of people coming out of this universal destruction is just something that I can't understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a gaping hole for sure. Um, uh, your view on the mark of the beast. <laughs> it's that COVID vaccine. Didn't you get it? Don't you have it? <laughs> yeah. Um, Mark of the Beast is not a physical tattoo of any sort. It's not a computer chip implant. Um, it is simply very graphic imagery to identify to whom are you loyal? Do you belong to Jesus and are you marked and sealed by him through the indwelling spirit? Or are you loyal to the beast and Satan? And are you marked and uh, sealed uh, in allegiance to him? But the seal itself is not anything that you can see. It's a reference to um, an issue of loyalty, either to Christ or to his enemy. Yeah. And um, really, I was very open to that view because any in the Old Testament, when you see seal, um, I would never interpret that as being like a, an actual physical mark. Um, I know we see it in Exodus and then we see it, I think, in, in one of the, the, the judgments uh, where the, the angel of death ran through through Israel um, for anybody that there was a mark there as well. Um, so it, it, it's consistent throughout scripture to see Mark as not being something physical. Um, right. Yeah. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Can you explain? Um, this was something that I, I was not familiar way, with. Let me, let me interrupt okay. real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Just to kind of round out that previous point that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. In Revelation 14, it says, um, I looked and behold, on Mount Sinai stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. 144,000 being a reference to the total body of Christ, a very 12, 12 times 12,000, uh, very symbolic. And it says, and they had his father's name written on their foreheads. So, do. do do the literalists actually believe that all Christians are going to have the name of Father or Abba Father written on their foreheads like a big tattoo? No. It's a way of saying their minds belong to him. They're loyal to him. They believe in him. And um, it's the same way those who are loyal to and believe and trust in the beast likewise are marked with that kind of a seal, but not in any physical sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's consistent throughout even just within the book of revelation and with the seal of the saints. Um, so uh, one, one thing that I was 
um, I guess was new to me was uh, your view on the the seventieth week, uh, Daniel's seventieth week. Um, so you you also see that as symbolic. Uh, can you explain your view on that last week? Yeah, that would be difficult to do uh, in in this kind of a setting because it is a really really difficult text. Sure. Yeah. And I believe just, the seventy yeah. weeks is basically. Um, an expansion of the Jubilee principle uh, that we read about in the book of Leviticus and that uh, the consummate, the 70th week of Daniel, we're in it. We've been in it since, um, now there's a difference of opinion. Some say we've been in it since the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Others would say we've been in it since the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. I think I tend to take that view that the latter half of the week is the present church age in which we live. Um, and basically in light of the fact that says he puts it an end to all sacrifice and he has completed atoning for sin. So I don't believe that the 70th week is a future seven year period divided three and a half and three and a half. I think, um, uh, it, again, it's, it, it's not the 70 weeks are not chronological. They're not designed for you to be able to look on a calendar and mark it off. The 70 weeks is a theological image describing the ultimate triumph and the final jubilary um, uh, redemptive purposes of God brought to their consummation. So again, for all the details backing that up, you have to read the chapter, but it's a pretty complex sure. issue. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I just wanted to introduce that for someone that was not familiar with that because that was completely new to me. Um, and I'm open to that view because uh, there's so many different takes on, on Daniel 70 week. And I've never, I've never really heard a view that just completely fits. Even if you're taking it, like you said, just from that chronological, um, you know, most people are looking at, you know, 490 years. It's so difficult to get that to fit when looking to start to finish. Um, mm -hmm. And so anyway, anyone that's interested and wants to kind of know the details of that can pick up the book, but like I said, I'll put the links in, in the show notes. Um, but I think that that's a, a neat way of, of looking at it, just seeing um, as this, what, what people would typically look at is a literal just three and a half years as essentially the most of what we'd call the church age right now. Right. Because we're, you know, we have with this view, we have, you know, both millennium Christ reign and also there's tribulation right. uh, essentially happening at, at the same time. Um now, let me see. The last chapter, actually two chapters of your book focus on Antichrist. Um, and I want to talk about the last chapter specifically, because it seems like you kind of, um, you didn't have, you know, strong conclusions on this. And I actually um, have something I want to, you know, I have a, a potential solution to, to kind of like a, an issue that you took up with there, you know, I guess um, you didn't quite have the answer to. And I, I felt like, well, possibly. I've got an answer. So um, speak about that last chapter and kind of you, you, you focused on, on second Thessalonians and you, you kind of were scratching your head a little bit about it. And I kind of want to discuss maybe. Um, yeah. To this day, I still so. don't know what Paul's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so explain that. And, and then I, I kind of want to get into that. I'm really excited to, to get into that. Yeah. He, um, he talks about, um, the uh, man of lawlessness is also called in some, some translations, the man of sin, the son of destruction. And um, he said um, that day won't come until uh, he is revealed. 
And then he says something that is um, really challenging. He says in verse six of Second Thessalonians 2, you know what is restraining him now. So whatever the son of lawlessness, the man of destruction is, Paul is saying, you Thessalonians, I told you this when he said, says it, or do, you remember, do you not remember when I was with you? I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Well, my, my point is this, if the Antichrist, the, the, the man of sin, this man of lawlessness, wasn't to be born, appear, and do whatever he's going to do for at least another 2,000 years beyond the time that Paul was alive writing to the Thessalonians. How can Paul say to them, you Thessalonians know what is restraining him now? Well, I don't understand what purpose or need there would be for restraint on someone who hadn't even been born and wouldn't be for another 2000, maybe even 3000 years in the future. Yeah. So I'm just a little befuddled by that. Um, you know, the, uh, the preterist is just rejoicing at this because he says that means that whoever the son of destruction or the man of sin is had to have been alive in the first century. Yeah. And they try to identify who the man of sin was. Uh, some say it was Titus. Some say it was one of the, uh, the Judaizing high priest, uh, who knows what. Um, but I'm just kind of left. I just kind of in this chapter. So if you're asking me for a definitive answer, I'm not going to give you one. Because <laughs> I just yeah. I wrote this chapter just unpacking the data in Paul's language. Mm -hmm. And it left me kind of dangling um, as to whether or not he's talking about a first century phenomenon or something that's going to occur in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. Sure. So what's your solution? Sure. So um, I've just been dying to talk to you about this because uh, it sort of just hit me as I was reading this chapter. And I thought, um, wow. And, and maybe it's because I, I've heard so much from, from the future's point of view. But um, I'm looking at Revelation 20. <clears throat> and I'm, I've kind of seen how this really parallels what we see Paul talking about here in Second Thessalonians. Uh, specifically with, with the this re restraining that, that's happening um, because we see Satan is, is being restrained in Revelation 20. Right. And then when he's unrestrained, we see that there's this deception, this, you know, worldwide uh, rebellion, apostasy. Um, and then now we're, we're, we're leading um, I guess, you know, kind of what we were talking about with Armageddon and, and Gog and Magog. Um, compare that to what we see in 2 Thessalonians, when the restrainer is lifted, we also see uh, in a possibly a great falling away, a deception, um, and then this man of lawlessness being revealed. So could it be that, the re that, that we're referring to Satan being restrained, that's holding back the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness being revealed, that really it's, it's the spirit of Satan that's behind this future antichrist um, that, that Paul's talking about. Yeah. In fact, that's not a, that's a view. I think I mentioned, I was trying to find it exactly where in the book I might have talked about that. Um, I may have been put it in a footnote. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's is one option for trying to make sense of Paul's language that, um, 
again, as I understand it, the restrainer of Second Thessalonians 2 is the binding of Satan in Revelation 20. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, that's certainly something worth considering. Um, um, I'm trying to remember who exactly it was that articulated that view. I, I think I've got it somewhere in the book. I'd have to look closely and try to find that. Um, but yeah, that is definitely a, that's definitely a possibility. I'm not totally convinced, but, um, so. Yeah, I, mean, I was just thinking about, um, you know, when we look at Judas Iscariot, um, and how he was possessed by Satan and we saw, um, you know, essentially Jesus being the, the, the one who, who prompted him to said, go, go ahead and do what you need to do. Um, and of course, Judas was referred to as the son of perdition. Um, and so I just kind of seen the same way Satan being behind this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition. Um, and so therefore we're not going to we're not going to see this antichrist come, come to power until this restrainer is taken out of the way. So I don't know, it just seemed to fit, you know, because it seemed like Satan would be behind this, this rebellion and that the Antichrist would be this man that would be leading it. Yeah, that's that's certainly worth exploring. So I'm going to leave it to you to unpack that in more detail and write about it and send it to me. Sure. OK, um, I think I think that's probably about as much as I can articulate uh, that I just did. Um, but uh, anyway, cool. Um, so I want to ask you as well, because we hear a lot from the future's point of view that we're really nearing the end times and they'll point to, um, Israel as, as being, um, a big sign of that. Now, from this point of view, from the all millennial point of view, um, you know, I, I want to talk about what are some of the signs that we were really kind of looking forward to now we see of course at the end of this um millennium the restraint you know you know satan is going to be unbound and there is going to be this um this rebellion so are we nearing that um what might be some signs that we might look for boy that's a that's the sixty four thousand dollar question isn't it Uh, yeah (laughs) um I don't look at Matthew 24 or Luke 21 to answer the question, because I think the mm-hmm. Olivet Discourse is primarily concerned with what led up to and including uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think probably my answer to that, which is very tentative, and I'm not being dogmatic at all, is drawn more from what I see in the world and the tent, the trends and the ever-increasing unraveling of the moral fabric of our society. And it seems as if we have reached a point at which nothing can really reverse that. Um, Mm -hmm. And you just have to ask the question, how much longer can mankind survive uh, given the the forces that uh, that are progressively being unleashed and intensifying in our world? Um, so if you ask me, do I believe that we're, um, close to the second coming? I would have to say, yes, I do believe we are. Will I live, um, to see Jesus return in heaven, in the clouds of heaven, or will I be dead and with him when he returns that I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if either it's just hard. I mean, you, you, I'm, I'm a 
bit of a church historian myself, and you look back on the experience of Christians in various ages. I mean, during the bubonic plague, the Black Death, the medieval, late medieval period, uh, from about 1350 up until the time of the Reformation, one third of Europe died. One third of the entire population. I mean, we're going nuts over the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, in which, um, you know, uh, what, seven or eight million people globally have died. Well, one third of the entire population of Europe died. Yeah. You don't think that they weren't saying there's no way we can go any further. Jesus has to come back. Uh, there have been conditions that have been so horrendous and oppressive down through history that virtually every generation of believers has been convinced they were the final generation in which they would see Jesus come back. So that makes me a little hesitant to be dogmatic, but um, I, I, I'm saying, yeah, it could be. I don't know that there's anything specifically other than that that I could point to. Sure. Yeah. But I, I will say I, I do like uh, this this viewpoint because, as you just mentioned, it, it really fits well. With not not looking at the those seals as being completely future. We can really see how the, those those seals, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse have really been writing, you know, throughout the church age, as you mentioned, that this, you know, tribulation um, is really nothing, nothing new. Uh, and that, you know, is not unique to our time. Um, but what, you know, me looking, um, I think what kind of is unique in our time, um, you know, with, with communication being as it is uh, and technology being where it is, um, in warfare being where it is, it's that, that does kind of make our time a, a bit unique. Yeah. And of course. This... Yeah. And, and uh, uh, again, I, it's probably not fair to compare eras and epochs and seasons in the history of the church. Um, and I know that there have been horrendous times of persecution. I mean, you think of the first, uh, three or four centuries before Constantine came to power and the suffering that Christians endured, were they thinking? Um, so who knows which Christ? The reason why I ask that is because I think a, a lot of people find that the dispensational view very attractive because it puts us right in the middle of we're, we're about to embark on this, not only tribulation, but we're fixing to get raptured out of it. And, you know, we're looking at things that are going around you know, along the world and, and it really puts us kind of right in the middle of, of, of biblical prophecy and um in that in that sense it, it's sort of exciting um and then so but but really and truly um i look at i look at this millennial view and i i also kind of see you know i see what's happening here at, at the end of the millennium with, with satan being released and i i sort of feel like um with the with the way the, the world is moving toward uh you know a one world government um, kind of looking back at Nimrod and what happened there, it seems to, it seems to, seems to parallel. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you, you can still hold to this view that um, Christ's return is near uh, with, with this view. Yes. Um, what do you think are the biggest strengths of the millennial view? I know we've kind of touched on it a bit. Well, I think it does uh, best it does justice in, in other ways that uh, other systems don't to the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. I think it is most consistent with a proper reading of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, I think it is 
perhaps its strong suit is that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it can it it alone can explain the multitude of events that happened at the second coming of Jesus. Mm. Um, that that to me is consistent only with a non-millennial perspective. Um, I think it's most consistent with the book of Revelation. And contrary to many people thinking uh, that Revelation 20 is a problem for my view, I think it's a strong suit. I think it's a strength looking at the, the way um, chapters 19 and 20 are parallel descriptions of the same uh, complex of events associated with the second coming. So, um, you know, at the end of the book, I have a cumulative case argument for amillennialism. Um, I just think it's the best. I think it's just most consistent with what we see in scripture. Um, so I don't know if I'll convince many other people, but I hope they'll read the book and maybe, maybe they'll find uh, some truth in it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think your book is, is a great resource for that. Um, it seems like, and, and here's the thing too, a lot of people, they'll listen to maybe a, a dispensationalist argue against amillennialism and therefore they feel like they've, they've looked into it um, and, and because they know how to argue it against it. So I would say at the very least, you know, find someone, who, a biblical scholar that you, you trust that holds to that view and listen to their argument for it. And, you know, if, if it holds up, great. If it doesn't, great. But um, if, if anything, it should either strengthen the view that you have or your understanding of it. And that's the thing, too, because the truth is truth. So if, if dispensational is correct, then you should you should walk away from hearing someone argue for amillennialism and, and be able to argue your view even even better because yeah. you, you know it, it, its weaknesses. So um, if you are looking for a great resource, you know, I, I would definitely recommend your, your book. Um, awesome. Anything else before we close? No, I think we pretty much covered it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, Awesome. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, you want to close us out in prayer? Sure. Well, Father, the one thing that unites all Bible-believing Christians is our um, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus, uh, personally and physically, uh, to redeem his people, to consummate his kingdom, to destroy the enemy, and uh, to inaugurate eternity. And Lord, I thank you for this. And I pray that regardless of where people land on this issue, that we would hold this one truth in common. Jesus is coming back for his people. And this is the foundation of our unity. And we thank you for this. And we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at theweirdchristianpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.